that we're going to continue in our series through the book of 1 Samuel uh, on those two chapters which Rhonda has just read for us. So let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our rock, our strength. You are the one who has uh, bought us with such a great price of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are yours. And Lord, we pray that you would be working in your people to make us into people who are effective ministers for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to build up those who do know you and to reach those and call those to repent to those who do not yet know you. Uh, so Lord, speak to us through your word. May your very purposes in writing these chapters be made known and may be brought into practice in our lives. So, Lord, minister to us now through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've got to confess, I am prone to being quite inconsistent with things that are actually good for me. You know how it is. Sometimes you get to a point in life where you think, man, I really need to do something about my health and fitness. And so you commit to it, you, you get all into it, and then you get to a point after you pass that initial really, really unpleasant phase where you think, I enjoy this and I'm, and I'm reaping all of the blessings and benefits of this. There's no way I'm ever going to go back. I'm going to stick with this forever. Now, Sarah and others who've known me for a long period of time are probably thinking, well, let's see how this actually pans out. I've seen this sort of words and commitments spoken before. And even though 1 Samuel is reasonably still early on in the history of Israel, we have seen repeated habits in the people of Israel, especially that is emphasized in the, in the book of Judges, which comes directly before 1 Samuel, where you see there's an ongoing cycle where the people turn from God to serve other gods and, and to, to sin, and God judges them and, and rises up a judge to stand up against them. They repent and they come back to God in faith. And the cycle just goes round and round and round. Now we don't see the, the full scope and the regular cycle of that in this passage. But we do see evidence of this still being at work in the life of God's people of Israel. And it's not exclusive to to the nation of Israel, we see it happening still today in, in God's people and in humanity around the world. In 1 Samuel, where we've come to at this point in time, we've seen a pretty stark contrast between the priesthood, that is the religious leaders who were quite corrupt and treating even the things of God with contempt. Yet in amongst that, there was this godly woman, Hannah, who had a humble simple faith, who placed her trust in God and expressed that in one of the most beautiful and prophetic prayers in 1 Samuel chapter 2. One time when she was there in Shiloh in the tabernacle, she's pouring out her heart before God. She was desiring that she might have a son. And she ends up having that son, Eli. And in with accordance with her own vow that she made, Eli, sorry, Samuel, as a young boy, uh, was taken to serve in the tabernacle in Shiloh. 
and we've seen him grow in the in the favor and wisdom in the sight of the Lord and with people as well. But towards the end of chapter 3, the people came to the conclusion and they all knew that they now had a prophet in Samuel and that the Lord's presence had returned to them in Shiloh. And I think they got a little bit cocky. The Philistines had been oppressing them for a good number of years now. They thought, now is our time. God's on our side. Let's go into battle against them. And as we know, what happened was that the Lord fought against Israel and defeated Israel in the presence of the Philistines. And rather than the people of Israel questioning, why? Why would God oppose us? What have we done to to invoke his displeasure with us? They think, oh, let's bring out the ark, some sort of lucky trinket to help us in battle. As a result, the ark was captured. Thousands of Israelites were killed. The Philistines take off the ark to their own territory. Shiloh and the tabernacle are destroyed. We learnt towards the end after the ark and God's presence had ravaged the nations of the Philistines and against their god Dagon and against the land and the the tumors and the mice. And so they send it back and that ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim under the guard of Eleazar for 20 years. And during this time, Samuel has been appealing to the people, return to the Lord, return to the Lord. And as we look through these couple of chapters, in chapter 7, now first point we'll be looking at returning to the Lord. Then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, turning from the Lord. And then verses 10 to 22, the cost of turning from the Lord. So starting with returning to the Lord in chapter 7. So some 20 years have passed. And it says in verse 2, all of Israel lamented after the Lord. All of Israel not only grieved what they had lost and what they had done, they yearned with a great hunger to be restored in relationship with him. Now we also know that from Judges chapter 13 verse 1, that God raised up the Philistines to oppose and fight against the Israelites for a period of 40 years. So this 20 years in which Samuel has been appealing to them to return to the Lord would have also been marked by ongoing oppression from the Philistines at the hand of God. Now Samuel has witnessed sort of like fickle signs of repentance and, and worship before, especially in connection with trying to coerce God into military favor. So in verse 3, Samuel describes them, if you're really returning to the Lord, this is what it's going to look like. Samuel says, if you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, before we even begin to unpack that, I want us to pause for a moment and take stock. I don't want us just to hear purely what Samuel was saying to the Israelites, because odds are high that amongst us, there are people who in a spiritual state at this point right here, right now, that is not too 
dissimilar to the nation of Israel at the time. Any of us could be in that place that these words have something to say to us right here and now. So take a moment to think, how closely am I walking with the Lord right here, right now? Is it possible that your passion for seeking and pursuing after Christ is kind of waned? You can't even think of a distinct moment when that began to happen, but you know that it has happened. Sure, it might have began with maybe just a day here or there, an occasional day when you either forgot or just couldn't make time to spend time with the Lord in, in the Word and prayer. But it was just a rare thing at first. And then over the passing of some times, it, it wasn't so much the days that you missed this that were rare, but the days when you actually spent time with the Lord that were the ones that were deemed to be rare. And then in the, intertwined with all of that, you see some of the old habits and attitudes and sins start to creep their way back in. And before you know it, at passing of time, the only way that you have started to hear anything from the Bible or in prayer is when you come to church or when you go to your community group. Or maybe even so far as to say that maybe you haven't even engaged in church or a community group for a really long period of time. And let's be honest, when we're not doing well spiritually, our first instinct is to separate ourselves from fellowship with other Christians. One, because we don't feel like we meet the grade, which shouldn't be a concern we have, because part of the function of the body is that we are to encourage one another. We're to spur one another on if we're falling back a little bit to, to lift up the, the erring brother and sister. But also when we start to wander from the Lord and our mind and our heart moves from him, then we tend to go back and default back to some of the things that marked our nature before our faith in Christ. And sometimes we don't want to put ourselves in a setting where these things that we're pursuing that we know we shouldn't be are going to be challenged because we don't want to hear something spoken against those things. Now, I know I'm laboring a point here, and you think, wow, this is verse 3, we've got two chapters to get through. And I'll be honest, there was a moment when I thought about doing an entire sermon just on verse 3, but we will be covering the two chapters, and yes, I am spending a bit of time here in verse 3. But it's important point to, to think about. And maybe had I not even described what it looks like to slowly move further and further away, maybe you wouldn't have even identified that as being potentially your situation. So if, as we think about these things, if there's something that the spirit within you is saying, that describes me. I, I need, I want to return to the Lord. Then listen what Samuel has to say. He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, there's two aspects. There is both a turning from and a turning to. For the Israelites, it's put away your foreign gods and your Ashtaroth and return with all of your heart to the Lord and serve him alone. It's not too dissimilar to what the New Testament author says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
The author of Hebrews doesn't just say, lay aside or turn from every sin. Of course, we, we, if we're God's children, we want to be turning from sin. But he says, and from every weight that hinders. From not just the things that are specifically stated as sin, but if they are hindering you from pursuing Christ, it says, turn from them and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Now, I, I doubt that any of us are in the same situation exactly as Israel, where people have idols and figures in their house that they're worshipping or they're worshipping multiple gods. But there may be other sins that God has brought to your mind in this moment that he wants you to turn from. Maybe it's old attitudes, old habits, old vices, a relationship, whatever it is. If the Spirit of God is calling you to return to him with your whole heart, there is always a turning from and a turning to. That's not specific to this passage. It's not specific to Hebrews chapter 12. We see this throughout the Bible, whether it's talking about putting off the old self, putting on the new, uh, turning from, turning to. It's throughout the whole Bible. They, the two go together. You can't just do one and not the other. To, just, to say, I'm going to turn to Christ and not turn from my sin is like trying to run a marathon with a cement truck in your back pocket. It just doesn't work. Now we'll come back to what this means to us later on, but to go back to Samuel and the Israelites, Samuel calls the people to Mizpah, where he prays on behalf of the people. He kind of functions like, even though he's not specifically called a priest, he functions like a priest on behalf of the people. The people confess their sin before the Lord. And during this time, the Philistines again here and they start to approach the Israelites. And even though they've confessed and come and returned to the Lord, they don't have confidence. They, they fear. They say, Samuel, pray more earnestly for us. So Samuel prays for them. And he even offers a burnt offering of a young little lamb, nursing lamb. And during that moment, the Philistines attack in verse 10. While Samuel is offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and he threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. It's almost like a role reversal of chapter 4. In chapter 4, it was the Israelites who went out to the Philistines, and the Lord fought against the Israelites in the presence of the Philistines. It wasn't the Philistines who defeated them. It was the Lord who defeated them in the presence of the Philistines. And now as the Philistines approach the Israelites in chapter 7, it is the Lord who thunders from heaven. Whatever this is, it says that it threw them into confusion, whether it was just like a perfect sunny day and all of a sudden there was a massive storm or was it the volume of it, whatever it was, it threw them into confusion and the Lord defeated the Philistines, in the presence of the Israelites. And the Israelites understood that the Lord had defeated them, and so they pursued the Israelites, and they took back all of the land that the Philistines had taken from the Israelites over that period of 40 years. So originally they were kind of just there on the coast there with, with Gaza and Ashdod and Ashkelon, 
But some of the areas that they conquered and, and he's moved over into, like Gath and Ebenezer and Aphek and Joppa, the Israelites got all of that back. And as Samuel acknowledged that the Lord had helped them, he set up a stone and called it Ebenezer, which means stone of help, recognizing that the Lord had helped his people. Although interestingly, the town where they'd previously been defeated by the Lord in chapter 4 was a town called Ebenezer. But chapter 7, 20, sorry, seven finishes somewhat like a, a fairy tale, doesn't it? The Philistines are defeated, the land is taken back, they don't come back and oppose the land anymore again. The Israelites have peace with the Philistines, they have peace with the Amorites, who were the original um, residents of the land of Canaan in which they entered into. Samuel remains a good godly judge over Israel all the days of his life. He's got a little circuit that he goes around and does, sets up an altar in Ramah, because remember that in the previous battles, um, the tabernacle and Bethel had been destroyed by the Philistines. So he sets up a, a new altar there in Ramah. And you think, everything's just going exactly the way that it should be. And much like in the introduction, we say, yes, but for how long? We've seen this before. So it's Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, turning from the Lord. Now, we cover a fair bit of time in terms of our passage that we're looking at today. You've got 20 years in chapter 7 where Samuel is constantly reminding the people to return to the Lord. And now come chapter 8, verse 1, Samuel is an old man. And much like Eli beforehand, as he's getting on in age, he starts to entrust some of the responsibilities that he has to his sons, to Joel and Abijah. Now, Samuel's sons aren't quite as bad as Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, but it said they sought after personal gain through injustice and bribes. And it was pretty clear to everyone, this wasn't going to be a satisfactory ongoing solution. They were not satisfactory successes to Samuel. The Israelites were thankful for Samuel's role and he was a great leader and they all respected him as a judge and for his role in the nation. But his sons, that, that wasn't an option. So the elders of Israel, that is the leaders from all of the tribes, brought their concerns to Samuel in verses 4 and 5. And specifically verse 5, where they say to Samuel, Behold, you are old. That's not very nice. Respect your elders. Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. That turned around pretty quickly, didn't it? Your sons don't walk in your ways. This is not a good plan. Give us a king. No, no, no question about should we have someone else serve as a judge. Give us a king like all of the other nations. This is the same people who the beginning of chapter 7 had returned to the Lord who had turned from the gods and practices of the nations that were around them. And now those same people say, give us a king so we can be like all of the other nations who are around us. How gutted would Samuel have been? And I don't think he's concerned about what was spoken about his own sons. He would have been equally displeased with what the report that he heard about his sons 
And we don't know if this is the first time that Samuel heard about this, or if he knew about it, because he's certainly not rebuked like Eli was for not doing something about the conduct of his sons. But Samuel, it says in verse 6, it says, It displeased Samuel, that's what the ESV says. But the literal translation is, It was evil in the eyes of Samuel. This request, give us a king, like all the other nations, was evil in the sight of Samuel. Why is it evil? The Lord is their king. They have the ultimate king, the Lord. They have a king unique that nobody else has, more powerful than anyone else has. Yet they say, give us a king like all the other nations around us. Be a little bit like a Christian saying, God, give me meaning and purpose in life. What? You're a child of God, the living God, a creator of all things. And Jesus Christ, when he'd raised, said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And you say, I need some meaning and purpose in life. You have, if you are a child of God, you have the ultimate meaning and purpose in life. And so as the Israelites say, we want a king like the other nations, they don't know what it is they have. They had the ultimate king. And as Samuel brings this concern to the Lord, this is God's response in verse 7. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. From being king over them. You can kind of see a glimmer in God's response there is, this isn't what I'm telling you to do. It says, listen to their voice. Not listen to my voice. Listen to their voice. Give them what they think they need. Now, it should be noted that the request for a king isn't a bad thing. Nobody's upset because they asked for a king. It was foretold back in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that they would ask for a king. It's actually part of God's plan that God's people would have a king. But I want you to keep your finger in 1 Samuel, assuming you've got a Bible in front of you, and turn back because it's a bit of a longer reading. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 14 to 19. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 19, where we see how this was foretold that they would ask for a king, and God then talks about what it should look like to have a king over them while they dwell in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 19. I could be funny and say I can hear the flick of pages coming to an end, so we'll start reading. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord your God has said to you, you shall never return that way again. 
He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon would have done good to read these verses. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. So God has outlined, yeah, you're going to ask for a king, but it needs to be a king that I choose. And it needs to be a king that acknowledges who the Lord is and spends time seeing what the Lord requires of a king. This king will not be a king like the other nations who is the supreme leader over the people, but a king who has a king above him, the Lord himself, whom he must serve as his king. But even so, in verse 9, God says, Obey their voice. Give them what they're asking for, but warn them. Tell them what the cost will be for pursuing the thing that they want. Let them know the implications of what it would be like to have a king like all the other nations. So that's our third section, the cost of turning from the Lord, verses 10 to 22 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Anytime you pursue your own desires, it comes at a cost. And as Samuel outlines the personal cost to the nation for having a king like all of the other nations, you think, surely this is going to change their mind. And if there's one word that sums up the way Samuel describes things, it's that word, take. It appears six times in the warnings which Samuel gives to the people. This king is going to take from you. Just to give you a small sample of what this king will take. He will take your sons for his armors and to, and to work his fields. He will take your daughters to be cooks and bakers and perfumers. He will take the best produce from your vineyards, from your grains, from your olives. He will take one-tenth of your, your grains and your, your vineyards. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And this one-tenth, that's in addition to the one-tenth they're, they're giving back to the priestly service as well. Now, I don't have a degree in marketing, but I don't think they are compelling selling points for a king. This king's going to take a lot from you. Surely, once they hear all this, they're going to backtrack and say, Oh, Samuel, I'm glad you brought this to our attention. We, we haven't thought this through. Yeah, that's a silly idea. Let's not do this. But verses 19 and 20. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Were they even listening? It seems like they were so set on, No, we're going to have a king like all the other nations to judge us and be our, our military warrior. We're going to have one, whether you like it or not, Samuel. Now, my parents are probably listening along thinking, I know someone who's a bit like that. As a kid, I get my heart so set on something and no matter what someone said about the implications or whatever, I was like, nah, this is what I want. You couldn't talk me out of it. 
And the Israelites were the same. They were so set on having a king. Nothing Samuel could have said would have changed their mind to turn them away from it. I think even Samuel's slightly surprised that, that they haven't changed their mind at all. Like he goes back and repeats the words in the ears of the Lord, who also comes back with the same message again, obey them. Give them their king that they are requesting. And so Samuel sends them all home back to their own cities. So as we wrap up in concluding, we want to talk about returning and remaining with the Lord. It's so easy to read chapters like this, shake your head and think, oh, silly Israelites, when will they ever learn? Have you ever noticed how perceptive we are at noticing the faults in other people, but so gracious as we think about ourselves, or maybe even so blind when we think about ourselves? So let me ask a question that I asked earlier on. How are you going in your walk with the Lord? Right here, right now. Is God calling you to return to him? Or is God calling you even to turn to him for the very first time to trust in him for your salvation? Maybe by God's grace, this passage is the means that God has used to bring you to that point. And if it is, praise God. In his presence, there is fullness of joy forevermore. But as we've seen, if you are returning to God with your whole heart, there will always be a turning from the things that hinder you and turning to him and to follow him alone. We've highlighted to, to just turn to him without turning from the things that are a hindrance to us is like running a marathon with a cement truck in your back pocket. So as God has brought things to your mind, whether they be sins, attitudes, whatever it is, how are you going to turn for those things? It's, it's all well and good to think, yeah, I'm going to turn from these things, but how? What are you going to do so that you can turn from these things? How are you going to bring this before the Lord? Who are you going to ask in the, in the body of Christ that you belong to, to, to help you with this, to walk alongside of you? Or if it's just a renewed reminder, as I need to get back, spend more time with him in his word and in prayer. How are you going to make that a reality? I guarantee if you, you chat to enough Christians, you'll find that there are plenty of people who are in the exact same boat who say, now I just wish I'd spend more time in the word and prayer, but I'm undisciplined. I can't make it happen. What if there's people who live somewhere near you? And you just say, okay, at this time every day, we're going to meet together in the same house. We're not just going to chill and hang out. We're going to do it. And we're going to read our Bible to ourselves and spend some time in prayer. But we're going to do it together to make sure that we hold one another accountable so that we remember to do it until we get established into good habits. Who are you going to do that with? Now, this is important, this returning and turning to the Lord. We don't want to rob God. We don't want to rob ourselves from who God has created us to be. If, on the other hand, you are walking closely with the Lord, keep going. But 
take note, as we've seen throughout the history of Israel, how quickly people who were once going well can easily fall prey to that gradual slippery slope leading you away from the Lord. The New Testament authors speaking about this period of time in Old Testament history say these things were written as an example and a warning to us on whom the fullness of time has come. Learn from them. Receive instruction from them. As a child of God, you are made new. You no longer have to be a slave to your selfish desires. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You have been freed from slavery to yourself and to sin, to live, to pursue the living God. What a privilege. What a joy. Brothers and sisters, we need to encourage one another. We need to help one another, both to to put off the things that are hindering us in our walk with God, but to help build one another up, to, to, to help one another, to encourage one another forward, to pursue Christ with all of our heart, that it might be done for His glory and His honour, but at the same time, for our greatest joy and our greatest blessing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's easy to shake our heads and look at our own life and say, silly me, foolish me. How often I don't even notice when just little small steps we move away from you. Lord, we thank you that as we draw near to you, According to James, you draw near to us. Lord, you desire richness of fellowship. You desire us to have union with you, the almighty God. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy forevermore. You are our life, our breath, our everything. Our Lord, draw us back to yourself. Enable us by your spirit. Help us to utilize one another in the body of Christ to help one another to pursue you with all of our heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.